Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And we're glad you are with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Come on in. Grab a stool. First, you're going to hear us complain a lot, and then you're going to hear three good martinis. And all of it's brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Right now, ZipRecruiter, you can try it for free at our special web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. Much more on them in just a moment, Jim. Uh, This is a special weekend. You know, this past weekend, uh, we set the clocks back. Daylight savings time is over. And it's also the time of year where you and I usually realize that the Jets and the Bears have set back professional football far more than an hour, more like decades, actually. And yesterday was uh, the perfect microcosm for that because it's usually around Election Day. Last year was a happy anomaly for the Bears, but usually around Election Day where we realize we're not going to play any meaningful games pretty much for the rest of the season. So uh, let's look very quickly. Quickly at ESPN summaries of the Bears and the Jets yesterday. First, the Bears. Bears coach Matt Nagy will need to spend the offseason reimagining the offense. Everything is broken. The Bears gained nine total net yards in the opening 30 minutes against the Eagles and finished two of 10 on third down. Chicago didn't even get a first down until under a minute left in the first half. Quarterback Mitchell Trubisky made a couple nice plays after halftime, but he's struggling overall. The entire offense is in desperate need of an overhaul. Then, of course, uh, the, well, the Bears lost to the Eagles 22-14 uh, to 14 yesterday. Uh, Jets, unfortunately, lost to the previously winless Dolphins, and here's the summary of that. It was one of the most embarrassing losses in franchise history. The Jets are faced with three questions for the second half of the season. Can quarterback Sam Darnold be fixed? Will the team fracture? And will coach Adam Gase keep his job? The latter question will hinge largely on the first two. The Jets, 1-7, and seven, are a dumpster fire headed toward a 1-2 or 3-win season. So, Jim, I'm not sure why we keep doing this to ourselves, but uh, yet again, here we are. Yeah. You know, when Gase <laughs> took over, they, they, you know, there was a lot of questions of, you know, was, it, was there a, uh, a requirement that he make the playoffs? What were the expectations? And he wanted to play meaningful games in December. Greg, we didn't make meaningful games in October. <laughs> in a long history of disappointing weekends, it's, you know, Yesterday was really bad. It's very surprising. Usually one of the, one of us is having a reasonably okay season. It sounds like the Bears are really bad. One of my Twitter friends uh, offered the theory, Nagy is Gase. And Gase is Nagy. It's like the, and all of a sudden I dropped my coffee cup like it was the end of Usual Suspect. <laughs> it's kind of like that. You know, it was just a year ago that we were uh, being forced to run those nasty third-party attack ads against each other. <laughs> Because both the Bears and the Jets at that point in the season were competitive. And now this year, 3-5 and five for the Bears, 1-7 and seven for the Jets. And uh, I don't know. It's all about draft positioning yet again. Greg, I'm just going to point out, we lost to a team that was trying to tank. <laughs> Not even Patton could destroy tanks like that the way the Jets did. So for anyone not familiar with the terminology, tanking is when you deliberately lose games because you want to have the highest draft choice next year. Wow. All right. Well, let's get to the good stuff with a double shot of bad news for Elizabeth Warren. Let's start with polling. Uh, New York Times taking a look at how President Trump fares against three different Democrats in some critical swing states. Those three Democrats being uh, Biden, Sanders, and Warren. Uh, the states are Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina, all of which are critical, all of which were won by Trump in 2016. Among registered voters, 
Um, against Biden, Trump is even in Michigan. Biden leads in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and and uh, Trump is actually ahead in North Carolina. Against Sanders, uh, Sanders is up in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. These are all very tight uh, within the margin of error, with the possible exception of Biden's lead in Arizona. Uh, Trump leads in Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina within the margin of error. Then among uh, registered voters, Trump plus six uh, against Warren in Michigan. They're dead even in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Uh, Trump is up four in Florida, three in North Carolina, and Warren leads by two in Arizona. Then you get to likely voters, and that actually makes things even worse for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Biden is up in every state except North Carolina against Trump. Sanders is ahead in Michigan, while Trump leads in Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. They're even in Wisconsin. And then when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, Trump is ahead in every state except Arizona where they're even. So Joe Biden is still clinging by his fingernails to the electability argument. And uh, for Elizabeth Warren, who thinks she has the big momentum, uh, maybe not so much in the swing states, Jim. Yeah, uh, this is one of your, you know, sit up and and maybe spit out your coffee uh, type polls for, for both sides. Because if you're polling for Trump, this are, you know, one, yes, we don't have a national election you, you know, Trump lost the national popular vote in 2016. It's much more important to look at the head-to-head matchups. And I've generally been keeping an eye on it. And generally, the head-to-head matchups against, particularly against Biden, did not look good. Hadn't spent as much time looking at the Sanders and Warren ones. And again, it's it's early in the cycle, but there's no harm in ever trying to apply a likely voter screen to your sample. Holy smokes, none of these are that good for, for uh, the Democrats, Greg, because... Even if you want to take the Biden scenario with the likely voter screen, his lead in Michigan is one percentage point, Pennsylvania is one percent, two percent in Wisconsin and Florida and Arizona. I mean, none of those are out of out of reach for Trump. And you know, for obvious reasons, people watching this primary know Joe Biden is not in uh, uh, tip-top shape, shall we say, uh, for both physically or mentally to for the rigors of a long-fought campaign. Bernie Sanders, his folks certainly think, again, that likely voter screen, the only state that Sanders is winning is Michigan by three. Uh, Wisconsin's a tie. Trump's ahead in a bunch of the others. And Warren, I mean, Warren's not ahead in any of them. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, if you subscribe to the theory that Elizabeth Warren is the de facto front runner, I don't think that really fits anymore. But she's been leading in Iowa. She's been leading in New Hampshire. You could see her racking up some wins and getting some quick momentum to this. Boy, I'd be surprised if this poll didn't, you know, put a put a, a slam the brakes on this. I think if you're a Democrat, you got to look at this and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, there's a bunch of policy differences she had with Hillary Clinton. But in the end, the persona, right, this, this lecturing, hectoring, I know better than you, uh, professorial tone is not going to sell well in that upper Midwest. Um, again, one poll, I suppose somebody could argue these samples are wrong or something like that. But uh my guess is that a whole bunch of Democrats are looking at this and saying, holy smokes, can we really risk nominating Elizabeth Warren? Uh, and oh, by the way, you know, the, the other two options aren't looking too great either. And, you know, this is, this is you know, Sanders. Uh, the idea was that Sanders was the kind of guy who could connect with that white working class. Maybe not, Greg. Um, and so if this and look, we'll see how future polls show out. But this is an indicator uh, the flashing red klaxons for warnings. Uh, this, this should put the entire Democratic Party on red alert. Uh, that maybe 2020 is not going to be this slam dunk that they've been thinking it is all along. It's going to be a wild ride either way. I'm still fascinated by the fact that Ohio is no longer even considered a swing state, which might be accurate, but it's just so weird considering all the previous cycles that were were so tight. Uh, there's another Elizabeth Warren problem. 
The New York Times isn't in real uh, impressed with her funding plan for her health care system, uh, saying, quote, one of those measures would steepen her proposed wealth tax on net worth above a billion dollars, but the other, accounting for $2 trillion of the $3 trillion total, would go far beyond billionaires. For the top 1% of households, Ms. Warren would increase taxes on investment gains. She would put in place a new system in which capital gains are taxed annually instead of when investments are sold, and she would raise the tax rate on capital gains to be the same as on ordinary income like wages. And so, Jim, turns out there are people who are not billionaires who have capital gains. Yeah, and so here's the thing. On the one hand, people are not going to spend a lot of time sorting through the details of a Medicare for all proposal. That having been said, a couple, occasionally, just over the past weekend, a couple of people have said, yeah, you know, under Medicare for all, you're not allowed to keep your plan uh, to people who are generally happy with their health care plans. So I said, you know, like it's, it's illegal under Medicare for all for your employer to keep offering you your current insurance. It is illegal to purchase private insurance. Uh, the only thing you'd be able to have insurance for would be things like plastic surgery or things that are not traditionally covered by health insurance as is. Um, and people who are good Democrats don't like that. They're all of a sudden, like, well, wait a second, I like what I got. I don't, you know, that's a very big problem for her. And I think also just at this points out, her way of selling it, which is to say, well, I'm not going to raise taxes on billionaires. There are enough exceptions. Like, well, actually, no, Senator Warren, that's not actually true. Your own reports that you're putting out are saying you're going to raise taxes on people who are not just billionaires. The fact, and, and this will re- lead to a credibility issue. Um, and again, you know, again, when you know, if and when Warren is the nominee against Trump, is the coverage going to get a lot softer? Sure, uh, but for the Trump campaign, it's all here. It's from places like the New York Times that are not Trump cheerleaders, and I think it's a, a tough, you know, tough argument against her. You know, look, you you want to give everybody in the country the best health care that they can. You promise there's going to be no waiting. You're going to cover absolutely everybody. Uh, um, and oh, by the way, you promise you're not going to raise taxes on anybody who's not. Uh, who's not a billionaire. Sorry, the numbers just don't add up. Uh, and she's going to get that thrown at her for the remainder of the campaign. Yeah, there's some bipartisan budget crunchers that have said you're going to have to have like a 42% VAT tax, sales tax, essentially, uh, 32% hike in payroll taxes or a 25% jack in uh, individual income tax uh, rates just to try and make ends meet here because Elizabeth Warren's numbers simply aren't going to work. So uh, fun times, America. But uh, they, the sooner more folks know about that, Uh, the better. But uh, look, if you're looking for a new head coach for your football team or maybe even a new uh, (laughs) candidate for president, and I know two people who are potentially looking for new head coaches, uh, hiring can be a slow process and it can be a difficult process. Uh, Jim could have told you a year ago that Adam Gase wasn't the right choice, but uh, nonetheless, that's that's where the Jets are. Uh, But other people have uh, had the same problems, and it's not just professional sports teams. For example, you got this guy, Dylan Miskowitz. Uh, he's the COO of Cafe Altura, and he was uh, trying to hire a director of coffee. Now, who wouldn't want to be a director of coffee for this new organic coffee company? But he was having trouble finding qualified applicants through all the traditional systems. Uh, hey, email it here, job boards, whatever. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. ZipRecruiter's technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee 
in just a few days. you got to have a good director of coffee. And with results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers, that's 80%, who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Find out for yourself. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our special web address. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-I-N-I. ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, Jim, he tried to slip it past us by quietly dropping out on Friday, but uh, sorry, sorry, Beto O'Rourke, it's not happening. You're not going to get us to not comment on the fact that you flamed out of this Democratic presidential field. Yes, I remember CNN's giddy, breathless breaking news coverage when he decided to get in. And uh, Jim, that was pretty much the high point. He was standing on tables and diners, and that didn't seem to do a whole lot of good. Uh, Then he got more extreme in his rhetoric, and well, now Robert Francis O'Rourke is no longer running for president. And I would say that given how far left he tacked in this effort to become the Democratic nominee, his statewide, anyway, political future in Texas is also very bleak. But we don't want to go without uh, some of Beto's greatest hits First of all, this one in his very first answer from the very first debate. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. And how about that Second Amendment? Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. And what about the First Amendment? Do you think religious institutions uh, like colleges, churches, charities, should they lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? Yes. There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. Well, Jim, Beto lost. I think the Constitution won. We're going to have far fewer four-letter words on cable news now that he's out of the race, hopefully. So uh, what do you make of the uh, political implosion that is Beto O'Rourke? So, Greg, since uh, let's say since Trump came down the escalator, one of the big words in American politics has been gaslighting. Right? And it comes from this old film. And the idea is somebody wants you to believe something that may or may not be true. It's probably if it's not true. So they tell you something that's not true and they act as if it's true. And what's more is they act like you're crazy for not believing it. Uh, they accuse Trump of doing this a great deal. They could argue a certain amount of uh, fake news. You could argue that uh, some you know, Trump fans would argue that the Russia investigation was an attempt to gaslight Americans into believing that the vote was hacked or that Russia had you know, colluded with them or something. I felt for a chunk of 2018 like I was being gaslit about Beto O'Rourke because I read through a whole bunch of those extraordinarily lengthy profiles about how cool Beto was and how he was skateboarding and he used to be in a punk rock band. He's just so cool. Oh my God, look at the way he sweats. And, you know, he's, he's Kennedy-esque and we don't mean the driving. You know. um, <laughs> and, and it was just kind of, because I kept reading through these profiles and I kept waiting for the part where, and then he went off to Afghanistan and saved his platoon or something. Um, or, you know, just, just what, what made the guy so extraordinary because he'd been in Congress for six years. Uh, I, I had not noticed him. I, I cover, you know, mostly campaigns and elections, but pay attention to Congress. And I, you know, the guy, I had noticed the guy until he was on the cover of Texas Monthly very early in 2018. I read through that, you know, it was like a 14 page profile. 
And I kept reading through it like, why? Okay, I know this guy is running against Ted Cruz and I realized that's why a whole bunch of people are excited about him. But like, what else is there to this guy? And I just couldn't find it. And you know, much of 2018 was all about the excitement of Beto O'Rourke. Loses the race by two points. Uh, I'm not surprised. I, I was hearing early on from the Ted Cruz campaign, look, as long as we didn't sleepwalk through this, as long as he didn't sneak up on us, we were gonna win this race. It's gonna be close. He's got Democrats act, you know, jazzed and excited. Uh, demographics of the state are changing a little bit. The, it was not a good year for Republicans, but by and large, it's going to be fine. He goes on his Kerouac road trip. And this is the first rattle in the engine in this really well-honed image that Beto O'Rourke had built. And oh, by let's not forget that he raised more money for that Senate race than anybody else ever had in history by a wide margin, right? Yeah, that's, a, that's a financial advantage that you simply never have in politics other than, you know. And so the question, okay, so to me, he's like all hype and no substance. Well, lo and behold, Greg, he runs for president. And all of a sudden, when he's not running against Ted Cruz, but he's running against other Democrats that other people in the media like better, lo and behold, all of a sudden, all the skateboarding seems juvenile. And all of a sudden, the jumping on the counter in the diner starts to look kind of ridiculous. And uh, uh, you can kind of see, you may recall that uh, Julian Castro just dismantled him in one of the debates for not knowing what he was talking about, about immigration law. He, you know, his speeches seem kind of empty platitudes. Um the, the speaking in Spanish just kind of looked, I think it was, you know, there were two moments that I think indicated how much it was clear that he was a media creation. The, the one time he was mocked on Saturday Night Live uh, was, uh, the, you know, the quick introduction was that a guy who tragically misinterpreted our enthusiasm for last year was the you know, fake introduction for the uh, <laughs> Beto O'Rourke impersonator. And then the second one was when, you know, Beto was on Seth Meyers and he says, uh, Seth Meyers asked him, you ran against Ted Cruz in a Senate campaign. Do you ever miss how easy it was to be different from Ted Cruz? Beto chuckled. <laughs> yes, where's Ted Cruz when you need him? And of course, that set up Ted Cruz to observe on Twitter. I'm in the Senate. Where are you? <laughs> you know, there was this recognition that, you know, Beto work was always a creation of media hype. And so now the fact that he has, you know, crashed and burned and, and, you know, didn't even make it to Iowa. And let's face it, it's not like it was, you know, any of these states were looking particularly strong or, you know, for any of them. The entire country saw the same guy that some of us saw from the beginning. And there's a part of me that's a little bit mad about this. And by the way, I don't think we have that many Democratic listeners, but if you are a Democratic listener, you should be mad about this too. Because all those people who went down there to eat the enchiladas and drink the, uh, the Shiner Bach and to join, they were selling you a false set of goods. They were hyping up a guy who was not going to have this. And you you should be angry. You know, there's, by the way, for all the times Republicans complain about media hype, we don't fall for this. We generally don't have this happen because we don't have correspondents coming to write, you know, gushing profiles about John James in Michigan or anything like that. You're just not going to see it. And that's, you know, a, ultimately a factor in our politics. This seems to get worse every cycle. Um, and so I just, I'm going to take this moment to Greg to say to the whole wide world, I told you so. And this makes up for my egregious judgment in football teams. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, it's, it's great to see Beto go and it's a colossal indictment of the media. So remember folks, when there is a presumptive democratic nominee and the mainstream coverage all of a sudden can't find a single negative thing to say about that Democratic nominee because, of course, they're all in to destroy Trump. And there's plenty of negatives you could say about Trump, too. Just remember that uh, the media orchestrates its coverage in a way that it, it uh, wants an outcome to happen, not necessarily uh, a straight delineation of the facts. They see what they want to see. And sometimes that can actually be a big advantage for Republicans. Um, maybe you could argue our first martini kind of covers that as well with the polars, the polling there. But uh, that's, you know, 
that that's where we are, Greg. All right, let's go on to our final good martini now, Jim. And this is a profile you have done on perhaps one of the most significant names in Washington that people know virtually nothing about. For those who are, are paying close attention to the fact that the Attorney General Bill Barr has appointed U.S. Attorney John Durham to take a look into how the uh, Trump-Russia investigation began in the first place, that's about all they know. They know there's kind of a stern stock photo of Durham out there with his goatee, and he's kind of peering through your soul uh, through his glasses there. Uh, other than that, they just know the name, John Durham. It's not Bull Durham. It's not some sort of nom de guerre for Coach K at Duke, which, of course, is based in Durham. It's not his Pierre Delecto or anything like that. This is a guy who's uh, apparently built a reputation on both sides of the aisle where Nobody's really got a problem with him looking into this. Now, if he finds something, they're going to probably blame Bill Barr for it or something like that, or maybe even then turn Durham into a pariah. But uh, as of right now, uh, he seems to be a guy that both sides uh, respect. Besides the usual touting my work, uh, which you should always read everything I write, you know, <laughs> as, as a general rule, uh, spent a good chunk of last week working on this profile. Uh, it is about between 5,000 and 6,000 words. Uh, he's just a fascinating guy, you know, by by a lot of measures. He is a uh, arguably one of the best prosecutors in the country, maybe the best prosecutor in the country. Uh, history goes all the way back to the '70s. Uh, a lot of the big mob cases up in Massachusetts and New England and Connecticut uh, back in the '80s. Um, Greg, if you, have, you know, if, you, if anybody was a fan of Sopranos or or any of the good mobster shows, should should read this profile because he was there for Fat Franny. By the way, he was a 470 pound man. Do you prosecute that guy or just wait for cholesterol to, to work to do, finish his work? Um, but, you know, so all great mob cases, uh, prosecuted clan members, prosecuted, you know, brutal street gangs that had, you know, shot children. John Durham, I should point out, he did not talk to me for this story. He does not talk to reporters. He is, you know, a, a genial, friendly guy, but he refuses to speak to anybody on the record. So the only thing I had to go on was court records. Uh, statements in court, and uh, he gave one speech to one college up there, and I, I quoted from it extensively. Thankfully, he has friends and former colleagues and former foes who are willing to talk about it. Um, fascinating story. He was the guy who Eric Holder picked to investigate the destruction of the videotapes of waterboarding at the CIA. Um, as I said, this guy, I guess, you know, he, when he had his confirmation hearing for the U.S. attorney's position up in Connecticut uh, in 2017, it came out that he was a registered Republican. But this is a guy who is completely trusted by both sides of the aisle. Both Democratic senators in Connecticut sang his praises and eagerly supported his nomination. Um, he is an absolute straight shooter. And, I, um, you know, he was the guy Eric Holder decided to investigate those waterboarding ones. Uh, Greg, people know I've written fiction and stuff. But this is the first time I've gotten to write in nonfiction. Durham said to the general counsel of the CIA when he felt like he was getting the runaround about something, you are the only thing standing between the the Central Intelligence Agency and an FBI raid. Greg, I did not think I was going to write that in nonfiction. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's just one fascinating story about this guy after another. He, and look, we'll see what he finds. I, I think it's safe to say that Barr knew what he was doing and that he picked the guy who was most respected, most trusted, the best, most just a sterling record for professionalism. And if John Durham comes back and says, I've got criminal charges against people back from the starting of the, the probe into Trump in the 2016 campaign, then there's a very good chance he's going to make those prosecutions stick. John Durham does not bring up, does not bring nonsense charges just in order to destroy people's reputations. In fact, it's probably the opposite. Um, he's talked, the one thing he talked about in that speech is the power of prosecution and the dangers of that power if it is abused. And the idea is not just, you know, can you indict somebody, 
It's will you convict them and can you sustain that conviction on an appeal? This is not a guy who takes wild, crazy uh, gambles and stuff. The flip side, if Durham comes back and she says, I do not choose to indict these people. I did not find sufficient evidence to charge them with a crime. Based on everything I've read the last week and the interviews I've conducted and all that kind of stuff, Greg, I feel confident saying if John Durham couldn't get a prosecution there, probably no prosecutor could get a, a, a conviction there. Um, that this is, you know, this the bar knew what he was doing. He picked the, you know, the A plus top of the heap. Uh, this is a guy who's been doing this for a very long time and taken on some very big foes, all kinds of situations that have involved the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI. This was the guy who prosecuted the FBI agent who was uh, informing Whitey Bolter. Um, all that stuff is in there. So I tell everybody, go take a look, listen, uh, or, or read, read it through. I think it's fascinating reading. It's not all that political reading. It's a story of cops and robbers and gangsters and uh, all that kind of stuff. But my conclusion at the end of it, Greg, was that uh, Barr has picked the right man for the job. And now we'll see what happens. I do think it's very likely that we don't get an end result of this investigation before the 2020 elections, which may frustrate some Republicans. But if your purpose is, you know, look, I think a lot of us want to see justice done. Uh, and the, the, you know, the pre-election headline is less important than holding people accountable. Well, that's true. But if Trump isn't reelected, do we ever get a conclusion to this? I think if a uh, new president takes office and there's a new attorney general and Barr's replacement as attorney general then dismissed Durham before the probe was done, uh, we'd have the first, you know, gigantic scandal of the new administration. So um, I think I think any, the future administration would be a fool to interrupt Durham. John Durham is the guy who's going to, uh, you know, when he makes the call, almost everybody else in the Department of Justice can trust them on that. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, I think that'd be a, a, a really dramatic turn of events. My, I'd be very surprised if anybody told Durham, you're not allowed to finish what you started. So what you're saying is he's not the Adam Gase or the Matt Nagy of prosecutors. <laughs> I mean, to put this in terms that Bears fan can understand, Greg, he's, he's the Ditka of prosecutors. <laughs> ah, prosecutors. Awesome. Jim, we'll, uh, we'll bind the wounds here and <laughs> go on till tomorrow. See you Tuesday. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you for being with us today. And hey, if you have a job you got to get filled, ZipRecruiter is the way to go. And you can try it free right now, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. And see you again on Tuesday for the Three Martini Lunch.